Firstly, can we make sure we've all turned our mobile phones off? And then I'll introduce you to our speaker. I was, um, I, uh, as we know, the removal of Colonel Gaddafi was in October 2011 was kind of heralded as a triumph as a new form of over-the-horizon intervention. Uh, driven forward by the ex-president uh, of France and our own dear British Prime Minister, with Obama apparently being dragged, kicking and screaming behind. And then, of course, it disappeared. It went out of the news with occasional flashes of when the American ambassador was murdered or when the Prime Minister was kidnapped uh, by a militia. Uh, I bumped into Florence in, um, in the Middle East, and we started talking about that, and she'd just come back from Libya, so I thought it would be excellent to bring her to the London School of Economics and put her in front of a well-informed crowd. Um, she's, uh, at the, let me get, get all her titles correct. Uh, most uh, most uh, amusingly, her Twitter feed is called Florence of Arabia, which uh, <laughs> I think indicates at least a sense of humour. Um, she's very well published. We were just comparing articles on, on things she's published since she left the NATO Defence College and has arrived in Paris at the European Union Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, and so I think we're going to have an excellent talk for about 40, 45 minutes, mm-hmm. and then questions afterwards. Okay, without further ado, Florence. Okay. Yeah, I do have a sense of humor, although I'm half German. Uh, it's probably my half French side that has a sense of humor. Don't expect too much from me, but. Um, yeah, good evening, everyone. It's uh, great for me to be here and to talk to you tonight. I'm going back to Libya actually two weeks from now, I will say, inshallah, because we don't know how the events are going to unfold after the anniversary on February 17. Um, but I want to make one thing clear. The reason I've called this lecture uh, a happy ending that wasn't was because Libya had it all, so to speak. It had all the opportunities to be a success. And um, as analysts, if you look beyond the surface already in 2011, you could see that there might be some cracks in the picture. But uh, in Europe, uh, especially policymakers were very positive, and journalists as well. And you know, there was this big uh, euphoria um, that you might remember uh, about Libya being liberated from over 40 years of dictatorship, uh, the first UN mission mandated, you know. Uh, for the protection of civilians. Uh, I'm sure you've heard classes about uh, R2P and all of that. And Libya, in that uh, sense, was, um, let's say, a first in many good ways. Now, unfortunately, this is what happened since. This picture is from November last year. It was taken in Benghazi, um, where uh, about 40 people died uh, in clashes between militias and civilians. Can you all hear me okay? Is this loud enough? If you're not nodding, it means you're not hearing me. Okay, good. Um, So the question is, what happened between these two pictures? And I'm not allotting guilt here. This is, I'm an analyst, I'm working, I'm trying to understand what happened. And I think what we're trying to do over the next uh, one and a half, two hours is to uh, understand what happened and what can we learn from from what happened in in Libya. Especially, let me quote... um, Antisir Chairman Mustafa Abdel Jalil, who said in October 2011, when he officially declared the liberation of Libya, made a very promising speech where he said where he called for reconciliation, where he announced a new, a new constitution to be written, a two-year transitional program, a constitution that will be put to referendum, etc., etc. So it all sounded very, very good. And indeed, when Prime Minister David Cameron came to Libya, actually even before that speech, he said, I'm amazed, let me quote, the fact that roads are full of traffic, your water is flowing, your hospitals are working, this is impressive. 
and it was. The problem is that uh, political situations don't unfold overnight. So the situation we saw in September, October 2011 was, of course, not uh, what was going to happen. Um, if you haven't followed the news, some of you in this room have followed the Libyan news. Let me update you on what has happened between the first and the second picture. Um, we've had a deteriorating, deteriorating sorry, security situation. Uh, the uh, death of U.S. Ambassador Stevens that uh, Toby Dodge just mentioned is just one of many attacks on diplomatic uh, personnel. You had isolated incidents of violence, not necessarily politically motivated. You had the airport uh, besieged or actually occupied by militias. Um, you actually have tragically also an economic uh, uh, impact with uh, essentially the oil output last summer being almost back to where it was during the war. So 70% um, decrease in Libyan oil output because you had um, uh, well, strikes at the oil factories, uh, militias taking over the oil factories, etc., etc. In other words, a situation which is so unstable that right now nothing is really moving. The parliament, the General National Congress, well, it's an interim parliament, has been besieged as well by militias, so the institutions that are supposed to work, that are supposed to push the transition forward, are not working. So the state situation we have today is that there is a national dialogue, uh, well, the idea of a national dialogue, it hasn't begun yet, but you have a real, a real uh, stalemate where nothing is moving. Well, situation, security and economy are going down, but politically we're stuck. Now, I think the worst thing for me is that uh, Libyans who went... Uh, uh, into the streets and actually jeopardize their own lives for a change of regime are losing hope when it comes to democracy. About a third said in recent polls that um, they're not sure that democracy is actually the right model for their state. We're running out of time in Libya. Um, tonight, let's look at the reason why and what we can learn and can we actually turn the ship still around. Now, um, as I said, it's not about allotting guilt, but I have identified three main drivers of why the situation is where it is today. Two of those were, in my opinion, not avoidable. So, so much for allotting guilt. I think these are the facts that we have. But one, uh, one driver or a series of drivers collected in one, uh, I think, uh, was seriously mishandled, could have been done a lot better. Now, what is it that actually happened? These are the three reasons. First of all, post-conflict and post-regime. Don't confuse the two. They are often related, but in terms of impact, they are different. And taken individually, they're already difficult. Taken together, even more so. Of course, that's something we couldn't change in 2011. Post-regime, the, the regime change was something the Libyans wanted, many Libyans wanted. Uh, conflict was a given. Second thing is the legacy of the previous regime that's also a given. That's not, you have to work with the situation that you have on the ground. Thirdly, a mishandled transition phase, in my opinion. Um, lastly, I should mention that Libya has also passed a law that... Um, what, what is so tragic about Libya is, as you just mentioned, it's not in the news. Uh, Egypt and Syria are sucking the oxygen out of the European air. There is nothing else that can be actually mentioned uh, in the Arab section of the journals. But what's going on in Libya in a lot of cases is actually uh, as bad as Iraq was, let's say, in 2004, 2005. Uh, a law has been passed uh, March last year, the political isolation law, which dwarfs debathification, which is actually much more draconian, which will 
uh, affect many, many people and their positions in uh, uh, future, uh, the future Libyan state institutions. Most importantly, and I'll come back to that when we talk about security, it will also jeopardize uh, reconstruction of security if you send the people home who actually know how to do the job. Um, now, let's come to the first aspect. Um, post-conflict and post-regime. Um, think about it. What does it mean to, so, to come out of a situation that, uh, let's start with regime change. Regime change can be a revolution, can be a coup d'etat, can be um, actually even a conquest by another state, but in fact it means usually an implosion of institutions. Not, not the whole institution, but usually the upper echelons. People with the most knowledge, the most expertise, they're also usually closest to the regime, previous regime, they're usually sent home. So you lose the people who know what to do. Mm? That's the first thing. Um, of course, you also have uh, sometimes infrastructure loss. I don't know, in Iraq we had the uh, uh, large destruction of, uh, well, actually ministries, uh, uh, material. But this is the regime change. And regime change in practice means that governmental services will slow down, um, ranging from infrastructure support to electricity, etc., etc. Now, interestingly, in Libya, most of these services continued after in, in the months, in the, in the weeks after uh, the liberation, until people stopped showing up to work because they were afraid of uh, reprisals, because they were afraid of what would happen to them because they held an important job under the previous regime. So that's why it's interesting to note that uh, what uh, David Cameron said in September 2011 was not at all a reflection of what would happen later on. That was actually people still showing up to work because they didn't know what was going on. Later on, they stopped coming to work. Um, now, even if it's, if in it, in its moderate limits, regime change has a disruptive effect, but it gets worse when you add post-conflict. <coughs> Why? Because when you have a war, you obviously have a cost, an actual cost. Not just an actual cost as in military spending, but usually civilians can can pursue their economic activity when war is going on. Hence, uh, Libya losing uh, 60% of its GDP in 2011, something it had to recover from, and it's still, as we've seen, um, not doing too well on that front. Uh, so the fact that Libya has all resources has been vastly overstated. Yes, it does, but you need a certain context to exploit these and make these work. Um, Security sector, that's something that's inevitably, uh, obviously war is something that relates to the security sector. The first sector to be affected by war is the security sector. When it emerges from a conflict, you have weapons all over the place, people with uh, weapon experience, not such a good idea usually. And of course you have no oversight whatsoever, especially in the case of an internal conflict where virtually everyone was somehow involved. Or not everyone, but large parts of the especially male population. Now, uh, and last but not least, also slightly understated in the European media, which highlighted the fact that there were no casualties from a NATO side, 30,000, we guess 30,000 Libyans died, uh, 50,000 were wounded, there's still several thousand missing uh, out of a population of 6 million. Now, don't mistake this for a social problem. A lot of those people who died are breadwinners. So with every person that died, you have maybe five, six people that now have an, an economic problem. So that's uh, just something to keep in mind when you talk about um, post-conflict and post-regime change. Here, a before and after of uh, Misrata, just to illustrate uh, what happens when you have an internal conflict 
and you destroy infrastructure. Not only were these roads blocked for, um, for uh, well, let's say, tra for commerce, but of course you have to repair that, and it costs actual money, something people often forget. So what you have in general, uh, you'll learn that in every class, it doesn't apply just to Libya or uh, other countries, is that when you have combination of post-regime change and post-conflict, you have multiple crises all over the board in a country. It's already pretty much a catastrophic situation. When you have just regime change, as in Tunisia, or just a conflict, just a conflict as in Lebanon in the, in the 80s, uh, it's bad enough. You take the two together, it gets really complicated. Now, um, but the, this situation already complicated enough was fueled by two other dimensions, as, I, as I've said. Um, one is, I'll come back to it in a second, one is, of course, uh, what I mentioned earlier, the previous system, and lastly, the mishandled transition. Now, um, the previous system, there's been that notion uh, over Europe that Libya had no political system under Colonel Gaddafi, that it is a state without a state, there are no institutions, it's a blank spot uh, in the Maghreb, politically speaking, and that, in my opinion, is misreading the pre previous political system. Um, I'm not saying it was the most effective system, but it did exist and it left a legacy. Now, for those of you who are, who are not familiar with what the system was, um, you might know that uh, after the coup d'etat in 75, Gaddafi published a book, the Green Book, the famous Green Book, which uh, laid out his vision for a political system, and later in 77 then became the Jamaharia, which is um, uh, new, new, new logism, the creation of a new word, however you say it in English, uh, uh, taken together from Jamia and Jamhuria, masses and republic. So it's something he literally invented. What did the system actually uh, aim at? Uh, it wanted to uh, draw the maximum amount of people in, um, allow participation at the basic level, and therefore, of course, political parties were not needed because every individual could express his or her uh, concerns in the basic Congress, and uh, that would be translated in a somewhat executive way in the, in the committees, which existed, if you want, at a... At a vertical level at different, different uh, levels throughout the states, so local, uh, uh, national, uh, regional, national, etc. Um, now, the pr I have to add that some areas of policy were excluded from that system, such as defense and foreign policy. But in theory, everything else that related to daily life was subject to this committee slash Congress system. Um, political parties were banned. I also have to add that, that they had been banned in Libya since 1953. Uh, King Idris was the one to ban them. Uh, under Gaddafi, membership became punishable by death, but political parties don't have a long-standing history uh, in Libya. Now, what does this mean for today? It means that you have a very participatory landscape. Of course, the system was not as successful as Gaddafi wanted in drawing people in, but let's still say that the shadow is still there. The idea that you know people should participate in politics is there. Um, political parties are distrusted. It's not something that's a, that is a, a phenomenon, a part of a regular feature of political landscapes. It's seen as divisive sometimes. I'm not saying everyone, but it's a bit, smacks a bit of divisiveness, particularistic interests, etc. And it, it has in part led to an inability to formulate interests across the board. 
if you have a system which encourages individualism, individual participation, I will think for myself, maybe for my neighbors, I will not start formulating uh, interests as in social democracy, for instance. So, um, and you can see that actually, it echoes in the, in the GNC. This is a breakdown of the General National Congress, the transitional parliament. Um, the gray dots on the right are all independents. Uh, what does it mean in practice? It, I mean, the, the, the breakdown of, of the parliament was by default designed 120 independents, 80 for political parties. So you see that it, the way the system was designed was actually around trying to circumvent political parties, giving more power to the individual parliamentarian, member, member of parliament, rather than uh, a bloc like a political party. Um, even the two biggest parties, the National Forces Alliance, which emerged from the NTC, the National Transitional Council, and the Justice and Construction Party, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, even they are not as cohesive as you would, from a European standpoint, um, see a political party. You, have, you find in many European parliaments a party whip, someone who makes sure that when it comes to voting in parliament, uh, everyone in the party votes along party lines, or as many people as possible. If you've seen House of Cards, that's his job. Um, well, you don't have people like that because you don't have political party. You don't have you have political parties, but you don't have the same discipline, the same cohesiveness. Now, if you don't have that, you also don't have, let's say, a concentrated uh, translation of interests from one level to another, which can be a problem when you need to take decisions fast, especially in a situation of crisis. Now, um, the fragmentation. Uh, that we see in the GNC wouldn't actually be such a problem because I'm half French, I can say it, we have a similar fragmented parliament in France. In France, it's counterbalanced by a very strong executive, by the president in particular. Uh, you don't have the same situation in Libya. You don't have a strong president. Technically, in the constitutional declaration, um, which serves as the main document until there is a real constitution, there isn't even mentioned who is the head of state formally speaking. Now, of course, in practice, it's assumed that it's uh, the chairman of the GNC, but then you have next to that, of course, the government, Prime Minister Ali Zaidan, um, but he's, he doesn't have the room for maneuvering, he doesn't have the authority for, for an executive, that would be necessary for an executive to implement decisions, actually. So you have a bit of a disconnect between uh, the legislature and the executive, uh, the executive is not allowed to be member of parliament. Uh, Ali Zaidan had to resign, but that's in itself not so uh, extraordinary. You'll find that actually in many uh, democracies. The problem is that in a situation where you need speedy decisions, even bad decisions are often better than none, uh, you don't have someone who can actually make these decisions work. Um, Zaidan has announced several times we have a plan for security in Libya, he, I'm sure he does, but he doesn't have the muscle to implement uh, these ideas. Um, in part, people say he was elected because actually he has nobody to rely on. He was the only one everyone in the GNC could agree on uh, that he was trustworthy because he has no constituency. Someone who has no constituency actually doesn't have the power to implement certain decisions. So um, that is in part, in my, in my reading, um, the, the echo effect of, of the previous system that you have uh, in my, I would go as far as to say you have too much democracy in Libya today, not too little. Um, and of course, you, 
might have heard that Zaidan himself was kidnapped in uh, October last year uh, by, by militias. I'll come back to the militia that actually did that. Uh, but he's not, let's say, the highest respected person in Libya. There is not one person today in Libya uh, that, has, that could gather everyone behind him or her. Um, and I would actually say that even the ambiguity at the top of the head of state, at the, at the upper echelon of the Libyan state today, is also a little bit uh, a, a mirror of what was the case under the previous system, where Gaddafi officially had no position in the system. He was the brotherly uh, leader and guide of the revolution, but uh, technically the, the uh, secretary of the General's People's Committee was the head of state, but of course, in de facto, uh, I'm sure that he had more power than the secretary. Now, we don't want to be too institutional about this, but ironically, uh, the Jamaharia system, the committee culture of the Jamaharia system, I will say, is still very present. And there is a preference for caucus democracy. And again, that in itself is actually not so bad. The problem is, in a situation of multiple crises, as I said earlier, you also have inefficient decision-making structures. It takes very long to take decisions. Uh, usually they're watered down to compromise. You are already in a situation where you can't afford to waste any minute, and you have a very slow decision-making system that very often just doesn't work at all. Um, so, but that's a structural problem that could be changed uh, if you changed uh, certain aspects of the system. Um, Again, this aspect, I think, was not avoidable. I think many people underestimated that you don't go into a vacuum, you don't go into a terra nulla, uh, politically speaking. You have a, a previous a history that you have to deal with, and underestimating it actually hasn't helped. And by that, I mean especially the Europeans. I don't know if the your Libyans themselves are aware, actually, that uh, in a lot of ways they have taken the, the history with them. Now... Already you have this very complex, you have the context, very complex crisis. You have the structure, the decision-making. Now what happened in the structure? And this is where I say that this is where things could have actually gone better. Um, the mishandled transition. Um, security left, i go into detail in a second. Security left to manage itself, absence of oversight, insufficient vetting and training, culture of impunity, unrealistic planning. The first thing is security. Now, security, I work a lot on security. I'm, I'll admit I'm a bit biased on that, but security creates the condition for everything else. You can't have economy without security. You can't have social welfare without security. You can't have even elections without security. What happened in Libya after 2011 um, was rather tragic on a number of accounts when it comes to security. Um, essentially, most of the uh, former regime's forces had melted away, essentially gone home. Um, a lot of the police in particular uh, just didn't come back to work because this is what would happen to them. I took this picture last time when I was in Libya. This is a former police station. Virtually all of the police stations have been ransacked uh, by rebel forces. Now, if this used to be your workplace, I'm sure you wouldn't you wouldn't go back there either. So the police has virtually disappeared. So in a complete vacuum, the NTC decided, well, we're just going to take the militias. They're already on the street with weapons. Why not, why not use these? Um, 
we don't know exactly how many militias there are because there were militias that formed during the uprising and after. Uh, it's, a, it's a real mess. Uh, some guesses say 300. Uh, I would say that about a quarter of a million people at least declare themselves officially to be militia members out of 6 million. Uh, weapons, I spoke to the United Nations in Tripoli. They told me we don't have the faintest idea how many weapons are in country. You have locally, um, uh, local attempts to register weapons, quite honorably, you know, neighborhood initiatives. But do you have any idea if the guy who tells you that he has two Kalashnikovs and uh, a rifle, is he telling you the truth? You don't know that. You don't know uh, how much uh, ammunition he has, etc., etc. So you had a real abundance of, of everything. So in that security vacuum, uh, the NTC issued uh, uh, an order, number 20, uh, and created the Supreme, Supreme Security uh, Committee. And that was supposed to draft 100,000 people from the militias into a provisional police force. Um, what happened is, first of all, uh, you take civilians, because the militias were civilians who took up weapons, you take a group of already, they were not trained to fight a war, uh, they're not trained to uh, perform police uh, tasks either, which includes border management, crime prevention, um, traffic control, um, law enforcement, management of prisons, all of this, this is what the police does on a daily basis. You give that to a civilian who has no idea how to do that, suddenly has a rifle, and now, this is the second point, and nobody watches. There is no Ministry of Interior, there was no Ministry of Interior at the time, fully operative, able to control, actually, to hold accountable the Supreme Security Committee for what it was doing. And you don't have to be Libyan for this to go wrong. It went wrong. They were involved, the security, the SSC, the Supreme Security Committee, was in no time uh, involved in all kinds of shady stuff. Need to, I don't need to add that there was no time to actually vet people properly to train them. Um, they were involved with, into, at least rumors say they were involved in the destruction of Sufi shrines uh, one and a half years ago, which led to the resignation of the interim uh, interior minister. They're involved in the, the besieging of the um, government ministry March last year when this degadification law was issued. So imagine you are besieged by your own police force enforcing, uh, uh, you know, forcing you physically to, uh, to uh, issue a law. Uh, of course, violent clashes with civilians, uh, arbitrary arrests, uh, torture, and also attacks on Western Embassy. For a police force, not such a good record, I should say. Um, and there isn't just the SSC, because all over the country you had militias spontaneously forming. Not all of them are uh, malign. Some are really just neighborhood watches that in this uh, you know, area of, air of insecurity wanted to create security for their neighborhood. But some of them started acting as if they were above the law, because de facto they were. Um, for instance, uh, I forget this is the SSC, by the way. Uh, I took this picture uh, last year, so this is who they were, young men, not trained, uh, with a gun. I mean, that will go wrong pretty much in every country in the world. Um, this is the Libyan, um, uh, Libya Shield, sorry. This was also a group of uh, militias that formed and dis uh, as, an, as a, let's say, army-in-waiting. Um, what they want, they were officially attached to the Ministry of Defense, de facto 
you know, this official attachment didn't mean much in practice because there was the Ministry of Defense and the official armed forces, about whom I will talk in a second, had no real um, hold on them. They had no way of controlling them because they were de facto much smaller, less armed, etc., etc. And also don't forget the emotional... Um, let's say, credentials that come with being uh, a militia fighter. Now, that has changed since 2011. Many Libyans have gone and demonstrated against the militia rule, but, you know, having fought a war against Gaddafi, it gives you a little bit of more room for maneuvering. Now, um, Libya Shield are the ones that clashed with the civilians in the second picture I showed you earlier. Um, they're also said to be behind uh, Ali Zaidan's kidnapping. Um, in short, it is a rather uh, interesting picture. Uh, you also have the Zintan militia, which uh, for a long time actually managed Tripoli upward. Uh, they have withdrawn uh, since April last year. Uh, but they're controlling border exercises, they're controlling the border with Tunisia, and uh, they're also the ones running the prison where Saif al-Islam and Gaddafi is being held. So there is no official prison right now, which is partly why uh, the International Criminal Court has, uh, has issued concern that he might not get a, few, a fair trial. Um, he, he's on trial, by the way, for crimes against humanity during the, during the Civil War. Um, now, culture of impunity. I said earlier they behave like they're above the law because they are. Um, first of all, there was a one-off payment for militia fighters which in itself there's nothing to object against, but they had nothing to hand in in return. They didn't have to give weapons back, they didn't have to give ammunitions back, which would maybe not have been a good idea, although there are some African cases which have shown that giving money for returning weapons actually creates another market that you want to avoid. Still, um, $3,140 for married men and $1,884 for unmarried men, and nothing for the women, by the way. Um, the, the other thing is that uh, Law 38, which was passed almost two years ago, May 2012, granted immunity to former rebel fighters uh, for acts committed during civil war, I'm quoting, covering military, security, or civilian acts undertaken by revolutionaries with the aim of ensuring the revolution's success and its goals. So in other words, whatever you did to protect the revolution, you will walk free. So that includes murder, forced displacement, seizure, detention, and interrogation of detainees outside of a legal framework. So that is de facto above the law. Uh, de facto, the Libyan state was unwilling or incapable to investigate crimes occurred during and after the war uh, done by, um, performed by the militias. Now, even that wouldn't be so bad if it was limited to, to the period until October 2011. But the war is over but that situation is still going on. You have about, rumors say, 5,000 prisoners which rot away in, in militia-held prisons all over Libya. Nobody knows what happens to them. The justice system is basically on hold because many judges are uh, going to be vetted according to this new political isolation law, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, I don't know if any one of you remembers the movie The Gremlins. Anyone? The gremlins are these, it was in the 80s, it shows me that I'm old, okay. Um, the gremlins are these, these little creatures that you, that are, there's one creature who's quite cute, the mogwai. Uh, he multiplies uh, when he um, gets in touch with water. 
Okay, he's still a friendly creature. Suddenly there are many of him. The problem is when they eat after midnight, they become evil. In a way, you have to understand that the militias, in, not just in Libya in general, they are like that. In the beginning, they, they multiply for a reason, because there is insecurity. The longer they exist, and then when they feed on, on certain things, on, uh, you know, be it money or political situation, whatever, they start developing goals, political goals. So in that sense, we have missed the boat in Libya. The militias of today are not those of 2011. The window of opportunity that you had in 2011 is not the same today. It's not there anymore. This arming, demobilizing, reintegration, reintegrating these militias will be much more difficult in 2014 than it was in 2011. Um, now, if I go back to one last point here, unrealistic planning. Um, it's not like nobody in the NTC and in the transitional government afterwards hadn't thought about what to do. The problem is that the people who did the planning did planning that was unrealistic. And again, that's not a Libyan ex exclusive. The Americans did the same in Iraq. Post-conflict planning is a very complex thing. Now, the ideas that they had, um, they wanted the interim interior minister, Fawzi Abdelali, proposed the integration of 50,000 militiamen into the fledgling security sector. Now, this discarded um, three aspects, the collective as well as the individual uh, interests of the militias, the emerging security uh, sector's capacity to absorb them. So one, two, and three. So the first thing I've already said, the militias of today are not those of 2014, of The second aspect is, hang on, let me, let me dwell on the, on the what, what is it that the militias actually wanted in 2011? Uh, the Libyans created a pretty impressive institution, the Warrior Affairs Commission, which actually served the 250,000 men, again, women were deliberately excluded, uh, who fought or claimed to have fought in the war. And they asked them, what do you want to what do you want to be when this is over? And of the 250,000, take a guess how many wanted to join the armed forces. 5,000. So the interior minister had a very nice idea, but there were no 50,000 that actually wanted to join the army. Um, most of them actually wanted to take a, a, a grant, open their own business. That was a large majority. And uh, of the others, they wanted to ideally work in a ministry, Ministry of Economy, Ministry of Oil, etc. So of the 250,000, uh, you have 5,000 who want to join the armed forces and a, a bit of a smaller number joining the police. So there was already that disconnect, and this was at the individual level. Now, at the collective level, what do the militias want? Again, the, 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 the longer they spend time together, the sooner they start um, developing a, a collective idea, translating this a, as a, into a political capital. They wanted, if they stayed as a militia, to be integrated en bloc, meaning as one unit, let's say one brigade. So, I don't know, the Zintan uh, militia would become, I don't know, the 15th uh, brigade of the new Libyan army. That is a problem. It's a problem because, and we'll talk about the, the professional military in a second, because that doesn't really work in a professional military context. And I'll tell you why. If you, the, the way military forces work, you need an officer, everyone obeys uh, the officer, the officer has 
superiors above him, etc., etc. You can't have one unit that secretly says, yeah, okay, right now I'm part of, uh, of the Libyan army, but if I don't like it here, me and my unit, we just go elsewhere. This is what happened in Angola after the end of the Civil War. So if you want to integrate militiamen into the armed forces after a conflict, you have to disperse them individually across the board. It doesn't work to take them in as a unit. This is what the militias wanted. When they didn't get it, they decided, like the Libyan shield, you know what? We don't want to be integrated in the army. We want to be the army. We want the army to dissolve. That's the Gaddafi army. Do away with it. We can do the job. Um, that's the issue of professional, uh, professionalism. Now, um, who, the, the situation in the armed forces was mildly better than in the police. More people came back to work um, than in the police. Uh, mostly the officers came back. They say about 5,000 colonels came back to work. Um, most of the soldiers had either deserted or actually joined the, the militias, I mean, either gone home or fought with the militias. So you had a small group of, of officers that actually came back, and uh, I met a number of them when I was in Libya, and who were professionals said, okay, this is a great opportunity, we can rebuild this armed force uh, uh, from scratch as a professional uh, organization. Um, also, uh, I'd like to add that the Libyan military was not the, the arm of the Gaddafi regime, although it's often seen like that. The revolutionary committees were the arm of the regime, and then you had some paramilitary forces. The Libyan military itself was very much harmed by the regime so that it wouldn't become a political threat, as you had uh, in other dictatorships, for instance, and in Iraq. Um, if you're a clever dictator, especially one who used the military to come to power, the first thing you'll do is you make sure that the military is weak. Otherwise, they will jeopardize yourself. So the Libyan military was, was not used, for instance, in internal repression as much as many of the other security institutions that existed around the country. So just that just on a side note. So you have the small core of, of, of people who come back in, in, in late 2011 say, okay, this is a great opportunity. We're going to rebuild uh, the Libyan army from scratch. They don't want to take more than 5,000 people in. That's the absolute maximum they say they can stomach. Because otherwise, you know, they will uh, dilute the training standards, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et so uh, happy to discuss that. But the way a military institution works, it is rather a challenge to integrate um, former militia fighters. Um, today, la last summer, the the, the guests there is there are training programs going on. Uh, with the assistance uh, of uh, other countries, uh, European, Arab, etc. Uh, but to really form an officer, it takes about three years. To build uh, an armed force from scratch, I would say it takes minimum five years, if not 15 or 20, depending on what you want to achieve, how many people you can recycle from the, with experience, etc., etc. Because what you need in any armed force to work is officers. Also, they are the ones that it takes the longest to form. So, um, that's this 17,000 people, we guess, are today officially the Libyan military. That's dwarfed by the several hundred thousand which are militia forces. Uh, lastly, and tragically, um, in August 2011, the United Nations toyed with the idea to send a military observer mission. Observer mission is usually not more than 3,000 people. I would guess in the case of Libya, maybe even smaller. And the NTC said, we don't, we don't want any one country. 
Uh, we can do this entirely ourselves. Uh, we want NATO to continue the aerial operation to control the borders, uh, but we don't want anyone in country. In my opinion, there was a misjudgment because security is an emotional affair. If you know the broken window theory, the more insecure things look around you, the more insecure it gets. It's a downward spiral. If you had a bit of a buffer in the beginning of, uh, of uh, the new Libya, maybe the situation wouldn't be where it is today. Just to signal security in key points would, might have been enough to deter the militias from becoming uh, the so a source of a serious problem today. Um, no political progress. Uh, we'll go, the Libyans will go for a vote on the Constitutional Committee in a few days. Uh, that committee will then work on a constitution. We're already behind schedule. Um, the political progress, the fact that it's stuck, doesn't concern me too much, doesn't worry me too much, I would say. It takes time to figure it out. The problem is that on the, on the sidelines, you need security and economy to work. You can't afford the luxury of a serious political stalemate if everything else is falling apart. It's, uh, it's a bit like changing a jockey on a horse that's already dying. Or not dying, let's say it's wounded. It's, it's a very difficult situation. Now, but still, to end on a positive note, what can we do at this point? Um, strengthen the Libyan state and its decision-making structures. That goes back to the second point I've made. Some tweak... We are still in a transitional phase, don't forget. The GNC and the way it's set up right now follows the Constitutional Declaration of Summer 2011. That's a very thin document. You can Google it. It's not even 10 pages. So we are still in the process process of hashing things out, this is the time to actually reinvent the Libyan state, maybe to, to give the executive more, um, more authority to make the division of labor clearer between what the GNC does, what the government does, etc., etc. So that's still, that's still a, p a possibility at this point. Uh, relaunch DDR. It will be more difficult today than it would have been in 2011, but it's not too late. It's not too late to go back and, and, and have a serious conversation with the militias, with the individuals. What do you want? What, uh, what, what alternative life can we offer you? Uh, an education. Uh, actually, there are several uh, young men that took up the offer and went uh, to university or other training, but the large bulk has not. Um, to reintegrate them into civilian life and get security back under the control of the state, because that's the main problem. Uh, the national dialogue has been launched, um, well, officially launched. Uh, the United Nations has worked on the framework. Uh, there hasn't been any meeting yet. Uh, I think from, from what the Europeans can do, the European uh, politicians, is to vo give vocal support to that. The national dialogue, uh, as it happened in Yemen and Tunisia, um, there needs to be an end of this zero-sum thinking in Libya, a serious reconciliation between... Um, who participated in the previous regime, who didn't, uh, north, south, west. I haven't touched on the tribal and regional issues because to me they're actually not, at the, they're not the drivers of the current uh, situation, but you have some serious, uh, serious talking to do. Um, I think it is not too late to turn things around, but it is definitely a time to, to get busy. And here I'll stop. Thank you. Right, uh, thank you very much. I thank Florence for coming in right on time. And what I forgot to mention at the beginning was that uh, 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 a 
version of this talk was published in the journal Survival, and those of you who are at LSE, you can get that through the library. Right, we've got plenty of time, three quarters of an hour for questions, uh, and the, the, the operative word there is question, so if you put up your hand and I pick you, say who you are, and then ask a question, which means I will rule out rather forcefully uh, extended statements or um, rants. So who would like to go first? Yes, you, sir. You could always could shout. It's up to you. <laughs> I would a couple of things I'd like to ask about from a, a, a kind of lay point of view. And one is that my understanding of the history of Libya is that it's an artificial entity, that it was made up of two separate entities, something like that, was it Saranaika and Tripoli or something like that, and that therefore the people of Libya perhaps don't feel that they're part of part of Libya um, uh, as one unity. Uh, and related to that, again, I th my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the oil, you didn't mention oil at all, um, and that the oil is concentrated in the Benghazi area. And so a big part of the problem is who gets the wealth from the oil? Is it the people, more the people who live in the Benghazi area and how that's divided? So I'd like you to comment on both of these two aspects, please. Two very good questions. Why don't you take yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Actually, I, I, I had to leave some stuff out. Otherwise, I would have bored you for two hours and then uh, there would have been nothing in the Q&A. Um, so, it's fine. Yes, Libya. I mean, the name Libya itself is uh, comes actually from the Romans, and then Mussolini, you know, and this grandeur of uh, of uh, reinventing the Roman Empire uh, brought that name somewhat back. Well, actually, not Mussolini himself, but the, uh, Italy at the time. Um, and, and so, Libya is, if you want, an artificial creation. But actually, I'd like to to throw the ball back at you states and nations to me are a bit like chicken and eggs um, what's there first the nation or the state now you can be uh, an egg an egg uh, theorist if you want an egg supporter thinking that the egg you know is there first and then it produces the chicken so the nation is there first it produces the state or you are a part of the other group that I belong to, uh, the chicken uh, camp, so to speak. Um, so the chicken is there first, and then it gives birth uh, to an egg, so to speak. Um, so the state is there first, it gives birth to a nation. Um, of course, as in the chicken and egg uh, analogy, it's not necessarily clear-cut, but if you look back at France or Germany, when they were created as the states that we know today, you didn't have the French nation, you didn't have uh, the German nation, as, as, as you would argue today. Many Bavarians in 1871, I can say that because I'm from Bavaria, actually, and my father still doesn't feel German. So um, I, I, I don't think that necessarily invalidates the idea of Libya as such. My feeling uh, in Libya is that yes, the Libyan nationalism might not be comparable to, I don't know, French nationalism today, but I have the feeling that, the, how does nationalism let me open a parenthesis here. How does nationalism actually come into being? If you want to pursue this, there's an excellent book called Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, I believe is his name. Um, he says that nationalism actually 
or, or the sense of community emerges from common experience, reaffirmation. If we locked ourselves in this room for about 50 years and keep telling each other that we're from Mars, then we will probably end up believing it uh, because this is how the human mind works. Uh, it likes to think in groups. So I think that Libyan nationalism in that, in that context, especially the, the common experience to war and, and, uh, and the long uh, decades under Gaddafi have led to a certain Libyan nationalism. Um, I didn't get the feeling that the federal aspect that you mentioned, um, there were actually three regions, uh, Tripolitania, Cyrenaica, and Fezan in the south, that it was so pronounced. Of course, that, that might change over time. And the, the more violent the conflicts become, it's likely to be more pronounced, a bit as in Iraq after 2003. Um, the... The, yes, the oil is located mostly, not all, uh, mostly in the east. There's also some in the south. Um, but it that certainly plays a role when you talk about federalism. Now, um, there were occasional um, calls for federalism, for a federal kind of uh, republic um, since 2011. It's always been met with um, rather strong uh, resistance, well, obviously, mostly it comes from the East, not from the West. But um, nobody has actually called for an end to Libya, Libya as, as one entity. I think what we're seeing right now is more a redistribution of, of influence. Also, the East has felt neglected by Gaddafi. Um, they claim that there was less investment in the Eastern region, etc. I can't... I can't prove that, but it's certainly a feeling that has to be taken into consideration. I think... What you will find, um, especially after 2011, is a strong city identity. For instance, Misrata, there's been lots of talks about Libyan tribes. I would say that in addition to the traditional tribal system, you now have a parallel system, which is a city's identity, where Misrata uh, or Zintan, for instance, revolve very much around what the city has experienced uh, during the war. Um, certainly fragmented identities, but I would say still in a, in a certain Libyan context that until now has not uh, left the Libyan context, but in a situation like this, especially when security and economy go down, identities are very easily to play on, and I wouldn't be surprised if in no time People are using that argument, actually. Um, by the way, some people are already trying to sell oil uh, literally off the, off the, I mean, how do you say that? Individual uh, militias going and pumping oil and approaching uh, uh, companies in Europe uh, to sell oil, which is kind of unusual, considering that it's usually through an official process. Thanks. Yes, you sir. Hi. I was interested in what you were saying. You mentioned that um, the Libyan Revolutionary Transition Government, that they actually refused quite a lot of in-country help when it came down to rebuilding the security infrastructure, and um, uh, especially with developing um, armed forces and police forces. Because my impression was that once, um, uh, once Gaddafi fell, and then there was, you know, the creation of a transition state. That, of course, that everyone in NATO and all the retired generals are like parachuting in, and all the retired police constables come parachuting in, saying, "Oh, don't worry, we can teach you how to establish a proper police state, a proper like uh, military system." Um, so, did this not happen? Was this actively refused, or was this as a result of bad planning on the result of uh, uh, on uh, on in the case of NATO? Um, because I would have assumed this would have been, you know, one of the first things to kick in when you're 
trying to create a new state, all the experts see an opportunity to make lots of money advising the government on creating a new security system. Yeah, it's a great question, actually, because uh, I've been following... Uh, I, w- I worked in NATO during the war, uh, NATO Defense College, and uh, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, when the war was over, everyone was just happy that it was over, and then, uh, brilliant, uh, nothing has gone wrong, and, of course, there was this whole... Uh, yeah, NATO uh, Libya can become part of the Mediterranean Dialogue, you know, this uh, NATO Southern Outreach Program, if you want, and, yeah, if they want, of course, they can can have uh, a training mission or something like that. Um, there was First, there was a lot of talk and, and not much action. Then several countries came forward, uh, Jordan, for instance, and Turkey, and suggested concrete programs. Uh, Jordan, had a bi- Jordan had a bit of an, an unhappy experience because uh, I think about... Uh, 300 Libyans were sent to uh, former militia fighters were sent to Amman for police training and they ransacked the building and refused to take orders and then uh, Jordan sent them home saying okay you have to vet these people properly so this is you know goes back to post regime change Uh, does anyone know in this room how to vet people I wouldn't know how to do it because I've never done it so if you don't have the proper mechanisms in place so in other words NATO didn't know who to call they offered, and uh, Libya said, yeah, we'll get back to you, and then they never did because the people in place just didn't really know in the beginning. Um, since then, it's gotten a lot better. You have, um, the Libyans have, deliberate, have, have very clearly said no in-country training whatsoever. So um, there are, is now UBAM um, Libya, the European uh, Border Assistance Mission, uh, currently located in Malta for security reasons. It's kind of ironic if you think about it, since uh, the mission is supposed to help improve security. Um, the same goes for all the other programs um, France, the UK, Italy have all offered assistance, but it's all in the respective countries. So the, so the people fly there and then get training there and then go back to Libya. Um, NATO, I know that there has been a delegation to Libya to figure out what they're, what they're supposed to do. But the problem is that from a practical standpoint, uh, in-country training is just much more efficient. Uh, it, and it's also much cheaper. Um, if uh, I send uh, one person to Tripoli, th- that person can teach. It's one fl- plane ticket, and it can te- that person can teach. I don't know, 500 people. Whereas to take 500 people to the other side, it's much more cost incentive, and there isn't that much money right now. But money was not that main concern in Libya. I mean, the Libyans had, were very proud and said, "We don't need. We don't need help. We need. Uh, we don't need financial help. We need uh, maybe structural support." and we will not be talked down on. So there was maybe a little bit also from the new Libyan decision makers in the beginning, a little bit of overestimating how they could manage the situation. I just know that the World Bank came and the Libyans did not like how the World Bank spoke to them and they sent them home. So we don't need your help. So um, there's a little bit of that. Uh, So I would say good ideas, bit of lack of experience, underestimating the security situation. Um, in the NTC, the, the National Transitional Council, there were very few people with actual experience in the security sector. Um, so you had, I think, uh, maybe two or three out of 50 really had any clue how security works, and, and they weren't the ones that were hurt the most. So there was also that, and that, I would say, is not just a problem in Libya. I mean, civil-military relations aren't always uh, the best uh, uh, over, in the, over here as well, I mean, over in Europe. 
I know that you don't consider yourselves Europeans, but uh, we actually consider you Europeans. But um, point is that I don't think it was ill-intended from anyone. I think. Uh, Especially in the in the late three months, last three months of 2011, there was overestimation of what was going on in Libya, in Libya and uh, in uh, in the, the European capitals. There was a bit of wishful thinking and just relief that it was over, it had gone well, and uh, let's take it from there. Throughout 2012, you re they realized the situation was going not so well, first program started, etc., etc. Um, so it is picking up now, especially the United States has put uh, a serious money on the table to, to get this going. The problem is not money, the problem is time. Right, let's take a, a series of questions first. You in the front. Yes, actually, question. I just would like to answer the That's enough, thanks. And there's a question at the back there. Yeah, that's you, sir. And then behind you as well. We'll take three. The, as far as I know, the only country that maintained a continuing relationship with different entities in Libya was Italy. And as you know, the Italians uh, did not want to participate in a takedown of Gaddafi on the grounds that there was no Libya, there were no Libyans, there was only a regime, and if you take down the regime, you get anarchy. That was the, the Italian position. Uh, it was shared for several hours in the Pentagon, and then it was overruled by the three terrible women, and the U.S. policy changed. Now, the Italians did know a lot about Libya. Nobody else did. The Italians still know about Libya. So have they not been able to give counsel to the others? Because what they tell to each other is that one just has to wait patiently for several generations. Excellent, thanks. And there's a question to the gentleman with the beard at the back. 
Thanks very much. Um, I really appreciated your talk. I have two questions. I'll keep it brief. Um, one pertains to in-country support. And I'm wondering if you would agree with the assessment that Libya is, to a certain extent, the victim of NATO's no no boots on the ground policy from the beginning and if it is and if the situation is as dire as you describe it should Libya be considered for a peacekeeping operation now or some kind of stability unit at least within the ministries for example and then secondly uh, my second question pertains to your to the political isolation law which you said was more draconian than the debathification law Um, but it's actually had very few victims thus far. And um, it seems interesting because to to impose the political isolation law, you need to be a relatively strong state. Mm -hmm. But the narrative that you've presented this evening suggests that Libya is in a remarkably weak state, which would suggest that it's not able to impose something like the political isolation law. Um, So is it possible, actually, that the political isolation law is something like a paper tiger rather than something that actually threatens to to do debathification or degadathification or whatever to Libya? Thanks. I think that was three questions. So Mm. uh, four questions all in, I think. Uh, yeah, your point, I, yeah, I agree. Um, the problem is uh, not only do you get different national programs, then afterwards you also have quite a fruit salad of different people with tra- different training backgrounds from Jordan, from Turkey, from the UK, from France. And that would only work if back in the capital you had a national, uh, a, a, a thorough national strategy to rebuild the security sector. There's been actually quite a lot of help. Lebanon, for instance, has helped Libya quite a lot. Lebanon has been through a civil war itself. Uh, has sent people to advise, uh, etc. And I think that advice was actually taken better than some of the European advice, which can sometimes be a bit, you know, uh, finger-pointing. Um, so that there's definitely a, a problem there. Um, and, of course, the old debate about exilees and in-country, uh, in uh, uh, well, nationals, like, like in Iraq, uh, that's a, it's a very common theme that you'll find. Uh, on the Italians... The Italians played quite an interesting role because, yes, originally they didn't uh, want to participate. Then they made sure that it was going to be a NATO operation. They used the opportunity actually to bolster the fact that uh, JFC Naples uh, is an important part of NATO's command structure, etc. And they did actually participate, uh, not as actively as others, but they did in the end participate. as far as I know, at least um, they, they have been quite uh, forthcoming, Italy, uh, with, uh, with especially security sector, especially with uh, uh, Carabinieri training. They have quite a, a lot of experience with that. Actually, also in Iraq, they did a lot of that. Um, they, in Italy's interest is a stable Libya. And essentially, that's an interest in the interest of everyone, but even more so in Italy's because it's so close and because it knows uh, Libya rather well. The problem is that because of Libya's, uh, Italy's colonial past in uh, Libya, it, it's also not the best place to actually, uh, let's say, be too assertive in, in suggesting certain things to Libya itself. Um, and I'll, I'll release actually to, to your question about boots on the ground. Uh, I remember that immediately after uh, Tripoli fell, there were already first ideas about, yeah, will there be an in-country mission, etc.? Maybe the Italians could go. And the Italians themselves said, are you mad? You know, we can't go into a former colony. That would look really, uh, really inappropriate. So um, there, there's also that colonial dimension that mustn't be forgotten. Although Italy has done quite a lot of work um, more than some other European states on its colonial past uh, uh, with Libya. Um, so th- Italy's role, I think, 
Italy has understood that if it wants to make inroads with Libya, it's better on the bilateral level than on a, on a European or NATO level. Um, no boots on the ground policy. <laughs> it's an interesting point. I think um, what everyone wanted to avoid in 2011 in NATO was a second um, uh, Afghanistan or Iraq wasn't a NATO operation, but many NATO nations participated in it, another Iraq scenario. Nobody wanted to feed again into this narrative of imperialist crusaders uh, coming into a, a Muslim country, uh, occupying, etc., uh, etc., et under the pretext of priests and so forth. So uh, it was very clear that even if some people understood that maybe you needed, uh, let's say, an interim force to stabilize things, it wouldn't have been NATO. I think that was very clear. Um, some argued maybe a North African force, you know, the neighbors, but then the Libyans said, no, we'd rather like not that. Then maybe Turkey, um, but maybe the United Nations uh, with a different uh, national um, contingent altogether. Personally, I believe Libya would have needed uh, a stabilization force, an interim force, nothing large scale, maybe just key strategic points to signal to signal that there is no impunity, that security is in place, basic security is in place, and to provide a blanket under which the security sector could then rebuild. To my knowledge, there is, maybe with the exception of Israel, no state in the world that has managed to rebuild its armed forces without someone else providing basic security. Uh, I, I just not, don't know any case. Uh, it's a, it's a security is a very emotional phenomenon. The minute it goes down, it's very difficult to stop. So you can actually stop it quite early just by um, sending key messages, visu visibly uh, posting soldiers in certain positions. Um, there was, because of the historical narrative, there was a strong resistance in Libya to have anyone there. Uh, of course not NATO, certainly not the Italians, but not even the Tun well, Tunisians are, didn't have enough men anyway, but uh, not, not the Egyptians. The Egyptians said we're too busy dealing with home. Uh, not the Algerians, which say our constitution doesn't allow us to go uh, to post troops abroad. So it was a bit of a, a hot potato. Nobody wanted to deal with that. Um, and the Libyans themselves certainly didn't want to. Uh, Legally speaking, Libya was and still is under Chapter 7 of the United Nations. So legally speaking, the, the agreement of the NTC was not necessary. If the Security Council decides we're sending a troop uh, to stabilize a peacekeeping force, uh, peace enforcement, peacekeeping at the time it would have been uh, to Libya, that would have been possible, of course, with the consensus of the, of the Security Council. But um, I think the damage that has done by not doing it... Um, you, let's say you, you had a significantly lower cost in 2011 to do it than you might have to now. Um, there are people now who are starting to call for that. I'm not sure if you've heard the French uh, chief of staff actually said that uh, he, he, he thinks France should go at least to the south to prevent al-Qaeda from, from running havoc there. The, the Libyans were very upset about that, and uh, the French um, government has immediately said that he's just spoken uh, uh, for himself, so France has no interest in doing that. But if the situation continues, if it becomes for Libya itself impossible to stabilize by, by I mean, politically and economically, then they will have to start thinking about uh, an option like that, regardless of whether it will be 
Pakistanis, uh, UN, you know, UN force filled with Pakistanis, Bangladeshi, um, I don't know, from all over the world, Brazilians, why not? Um, definitely, probably a nation that has no historical burden with Libya would probably be preferable. Um, you made me laugh with your very poignant insight, actually. Yes, in order to implement the political isolation law, you need a state that actually can implement it. That's right. On the other hand, don't us underestimate what's going on behind the scenes. There is a, it just takes a bit longer than it might uh, uh, under different circumstances. There, the armed forces, for instance, have created a, a special vetting committee called the Truth and something else committee, and it is tasked to vet every single person that is today in the armed forces to see, uh, in, in the case of the armed forces, it has, uh, the specificity is that it has to kick out anyone who uh, commanded a unit uh, pre-2011. That means not just officers, but also, let's say, non-commissioned officers such as a low-ranking sergeant uh, with a very small unit that didn't have even combat experience. So it's quite broad. They're currently vetting these people. Now, it took them, I think, two months to actually vet the people who were doing the vetting. And now they're vetting the, the, the 17,000 that they have. So it takes a, a bit of time, but it does have an impact. And a thing that I have forget, forgot to mention uh, during my presentation was that you have a targeted spring key, a killing spree in Libya, actually. Uh, every day you see in the news uh, police officers, uh, armed forces officers, air force officers, uh, intelligence officers being uh, killed in a targeted way. Uh, coming out of the mosques, a bullet to the head, that's it. it it's a targeted uh, uh, assassination of security personnel, uh, mostly with previous experience. That has to stop. It discourages, not only for moral reason, but also because that, that, that also leads to a hemorrhaging of uh, the security sector, not only because people are dying, but because people just say, okay, you know, I'd, I'd rather not die for my job. I just won't go back. So um, it... If the state isn't strong enough to do it, trust me, the militias will take care of it. Okay, another round. Yes, you might. I wanted to ask whether the security situation in Libya is exacerbating the refugee situation any part in the world or illegal trades like human trafficking, drugs, and arms deals? Thank you. Yes, you, sir. Nasser Kalawun. Um, my question is about the Libyan economy. We were told three years ago that the Libyan economy uh, is a rentier state. The um, uh, oil sector cannot take more than 40,000 people. So if you were suggestions about employing people, into uh, what kind of, apart from ministries and bureaucracies filled with relatives. And I take your number about the militias uh, and the Lebanese experience. One is 
uh, aware of many tricks how to milk the <laughs> state or foreign donors by exaggerating their relatives, you know, numbers in order to get money, especially for each salary. In other words, the problem may, may not be as severe as you prescribed, about 800,000 people, but still severe. But I think the numbers are uh, exaggerated to get money. So what you were suggesting in this as a Libyan, uh, you know, uh, a treasury, is it free to withdraw money or is not free and how much you think uh, uh, their budget can be as generous as you can prescribe? Thank you. And one more question. Yes, yes, sir. Ben Treasure. Um, I'm an IR student at LSE. Um, you spoke a little bit about um, Al-Qaeda in the south, and um, but I was just wondering, do you see in the future an increasing uh, presence of is Islamic extremism within Libya? And if so, um, would that change the kind of non, no further intervention strategic calculation that the West or other actors have made? There you go. <coughs> um, so they're actually all kind of related, so I'll take it's quite convenient that you three decided to ask your question together. Um, I don't know much about the refugee situation. I definitely know that, that you have uh, increased uh, drugs, uh, I mean, organized crime networks operating, drugs, weapons, uh, I suppose also uh, human trafficking, um, Etc. Maybe on the on the refugee issue, I would add migrants rather than refugees. That after what happened um, during the war, that um, I don't know. You probably know that uh, some um, um, mercenaries from uh, Africa, south of the of the Sahara, were recruited for, by the Gaddafi regime. Afterwards, as a black person, you didn't want to go down the street in Tripoli because you were, uh, by default, suspected to be part of the of one of those uh, militias. So there was a lot of that. Actually, a lot of them are still in prison on charges that are completely ludicrous uh, because not not every uh, African uh, actually participated in in whatever happened. So as a result of this. Uh, uh, many Africans have, have actually, I mean, African south of, of the Sahara have refrained from going to Libya these days. It's just not a very safe place. Um, when it comes to organized crime, there is definitely, uh, especially in the south, uh, already it was difficult to control. Now that uh, word to mouth uh, has gotten, you know, it just it has just these networks operate quite quickly. Have discovered that there is an uncontrolled space in which you can uh, operate rather freely. Uh, one case in point is the terrorist attack on the Algerian oil installation a year ago in Aminas. Uh, where the Algerian authorities say that uh, not only the weapons that were used by the Algerians uh, perpetrating these acts came from Libya, most importantly, that they actually left uh, Algeria through the south, entered into Libya, and then came from Libya into Ain Aminas, because in Libya they had free movement. Well, uh, as free as I like. The other Maghreb states have complained about um, weapon smuggling all across the Maghreb because because of the not only you have large amounts of weapons in Libya now available, but because there is nobody there who can control them, the weapons are flowing in and out uh, in, in in both directions towards Egypt, towards Tunisia, Algeria. The Maghreb states are not happy about that, as you can imagine. Um, Algeria, in particular, is very is very annoyed about that. Um, drugs. 
I don't know much about the drugs terrorism network uh, nexus. There are people who say that some of the, ne ne the, the Islamist networks in the Sahel are using drug trades to get money uh, and actually also kidnapping uh, to get money to, to fund their methods. Now, they probably did that already before uh, Gaddafi fell because in, the po in pockets in the Mali, in Mali, etc., there was already a lot of uncontrolled space, but let's say that the situation in Libya has certainly not helped. Um, related to that, I will come to your question about Islamic extremism in Libya. Al-Qaeda is this, uh, this ghost that haunts Europe that uh, you put Al-Qaeda on any project and uh, the security will be there. Um, I would say that the situation in the Sahel, not in, in Libya, and I'll come to Islamic extremism in Libya in a second, but the situation south of Libya and the neighboring countries is one that invites Uh, people to to gather to to train to uh, live out these networks that that that, may, that scare a lot of people not just in Europe but also in uh, in Africa itself. Um, so what the French chief of staff said was actually related to that playing on that fear. Um, a lot of people are saying we have to be careful of Libya; it might implode. Al Qaeda will uh, take uh, um, uh, gain gain ground there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My assessment is that if Al-Qaeda gains ground, then mainly in the south, because it can. Because as in Algeria and the other states, there is, it's very difficult to control the desert. It's, I mean, if the United States can't control its border with Mexico, how do you expect Libya to control its border, its southern border? So uh, it's just a very difficult space by default. What I don't think is that Libyan society as such invites Islamic extrem extremism. I don't think that. I think that uh, my assessment is that Libyans are devout Muslims. Um, that actually, uh, I, I read a, an interesting um, statistic uh, in 2012, not long after, after the war, where um, Libyans were asked, um, how do you feel about the Muslim Brotherhood, having a political party, etc., etc.? And they said they find it strange that a party would stress its Islamic dimension. And then when they ask, why do you find that strange? Yeah, well, they're just, we're assuming that everyone is a Muslim anyway. Why do you need to stress that? So it's a bit of a given that, you know, it's a conservative society. Um, Islam plays an important role, but it doesn't have that uh, political role that many people read into Uh, some of the some of the movements that you will see, some of the militias, uh, they they certainly have worrisome behavior, but I don't see them in the Al Qaeda section of the picture. Um, so, the Sufi shrines that were destroyed by some of the SSC, um, I wouldn't read that as Islamic extremism. I would read that as uh, the wrong people with the wrong capabilities at the wrong wrong time. Um, so, in a structured way, I would say that I don't see that. I, I see it more in a in a security, uh, more southern, so southern dimension. Um, Libyan economy. Um, yeah, you raise a good point about uh, uh, employing people into what. When I spoke to the Warrior Affairs Commission, they told me of the 250,000 that they had uh, surveyed, that they guessed that about half of them were actually really militia fighters. So you're right. I mean, the minute there is money, of course, people will sign up. That's uh, that's uh, fairly logical. Um, 
there ha the problem in Libya is that, uh, yes, it's a rentier economy, but when you do your budget planning for next year, as a, as a rentier economy, as an oil economy, you uh, project how much the oil price will be next year. That's why being in the oil business as a state is actually quite tricky if you don't do that right. Uh, for instance, Algeria regularly undervalues, actually most rentier states undervalue the um, price of oil for the next year in order to have a buffer in case it crashes, the oil price. Libya hasn't done that. The new Libyan leadership in 2011-2012, by June 2012, they had already overspent their budget because the, there was a real... Uh, spending spree going on. There was this, you know, handing out cash. Uh, we, you know, suddenly we have access uh, to all of these funds. Of course, Europeans unlocked some of the uh, some of the frozen assets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The problem is that now it, it's overspent. It's overspent in a not sustainable way because, of course, it's nice that everyone got you know several thousand dollars, but are they investing it into something that's going to result in something or not? The second thing is. Most of these young men want to open their own business, but want to open their own business as what? This is where they didn't have a strategy. At least when I spoke to them, uh, to the Warrior Affairs Commission, I told me, oh, we'll find something and we have enough jobs. You, if if long-term strategy, because all oil states should have a diversification policy when it comes to oil, uh, if the long-term strategy is to uh, diversify Libyan economy, then this would be a good opportunity to take these uh, young men and, and actually create another another section, services, what have you. And that did not happen. So uh, not everyone can open an internet cafe in Tripoli. There is just not the, the, the need there. So the long-term planning, I mean, I haven't spoken to them uh, uh, in six months, so I don't know if that has changed, but the long-term planning was definitely not very good, in part maybe because they didn't like the, the ideas that the World Bank put on the table. Um, the Mufti actually has called, has, has made two declarations, uh, one that uh, signing up as a militia man if you haven't fought in the war is immoral, is against, uh, against the principles of Islam so that was quite laudable, I don't know if it had actually an impact and uh, the other was that he called on the militias to go against the criminals so that might not, that might actually chase the cat its own tail I'm not sure who is doing what but the Mufti is definitely trying to influence that situation and the finance minister himself has actually uh, called on the government to stop overspending now Libya is wealthy but the funds are not uh, uh, limitless and especially if you remember the statistic on the oil output you need to sell the oil in order to get the money right now it's very difficult to, to actually put the oil out there given the security conditions Right. With our speaker's permission, one final round of questions. You, sir? Hello. Uh, November 2012, I was in Tripoli, working with the Ministry of Justice, trying to build a land registry system, but we ran out of money, so we didn't. Uh, the thing is that, how is today Libya uh, with proper uh, private property? Can you have a mortgage and access to credit? Because that will foster the economic development. Anyone else? Yes, you sit in the middle there with the glasses. Um, I was just wondering, what uh, level of public involvement is there in the dialogue for constitutional reform? And um, related to that, um, 
you alluded to earlier that people are thinking more along lines of uh, sort of big strong man rather than democracy as, a, as people moving towards that. Do you think people will vote for um, structures that allow more effective decision making? And I'll ask uh, the final question. The, the gentleman in the back with the beard said you were rather pessimistic. I thought you were rather optimistic. And uh, what stops Libya simply descending into a civil war? <laughs> Is that your question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, uh, when uh, I don't know if you're all familiar with the economic situation that you're alluding to uh, in Libya under the, the previous regime. It's quite a long history. So, uh, there's been a bit of going back and forth. Uh, at some point, the uh, Gaddafi regime uh, issued uh, uh, reform, uh, a decree that didn't allow people to own anything beyond the place that they lived in. So essentially dispossessing uh, uh, large amounts of people, uh, which led after 2011 to loads of people taking a spray can, going to the place that, owned, that they used to own and spray on it, this house belongs to uh, me. Um, and my name, I mean, in case people would forget. So these, not, a lot of these issues have actually not been settled yet. Uh, you'll find actually that also construction has been halted. There were a number of big projects going on when the war broke out and, uh, you know, big big building complexes because the property issues is not are not clear. That is something the justice system still has to work through. And as I said, the justice system itself was initially pretty much untouched. Um, Uh, Libya's legal system foresees that um, it, it doesn't abolish old law laws. The system is just that if you issue a new law, then the new law is more valid than the old one. So it's actually quite a self-renewing system, if you want. So there, there was, there's a whole legal body uh, that the Libyan judges can work with, is what I'm saying. It's not like everything was just nullified by, by the end of uh, Gaddafi's uh, regime. But there still isn't enough uh, legal uh, clar clar clarity, not only uh, on these property issues, because these decisions have to be taken by the GNC, but also because the justice system itself has been halted, actually, by um, a lot of the, uh, the side effects or the effects of the political isolation law. So that's uh, the first part of, uh, of an explanation. But you are relating to the second part, actually, do, do the people, if they want to buy, do they actually have the possibility? I'm not sure. Uh, I think that yeah, banks have been open and operative and I'm sh I think that you probably can get a loan. The problem is, do you want to buy a house now where it's not clear who it belongs to? I think that's more the problem. The funds uh, are not the biggest issue right now. The, the, legal, uh, the, the legal situation is not clear. Uh, who belong, who, whose house actually are you actually buying? And I think that's the, that's the main issue. Um, Public involvement, yeah, the idea is to bring in as many uh, civil society, you know, from tribes, from, uh, from city representatives, uh, NGOs, uh, minorities, as many people across the board as possible. The idea is really that the UN uh, assisted the establishment of this national dialogue, uh, as in Tunisia, as in Yemen, to have a broad dialogue, not just elected officials, but really representatives, and have a proper conversation. By the way, the goal of this dialogue is to establish a national charter, which lays out the principles, you know, the things that, that there won't be a Constitution, but it will be like a guiding document laying out, we want a Libya which is, I don't know, fair, equal, etc., etc. So it really is supposed to go in that direction. 
um, everyone agrees that that's probably necessary. That uh, that they dove in in 2011 and, and kickstarted a, a cold engine, so to speak, uh, into a new political system. Maybe that would have been the time to hold the national dialogue, but it was probably too early. Anyway, so yes, the aim is to involve as many people as possible. It's a bit too soon to tell how it's going to work out, but at least everyone agrees it's a good idea and people want to participate. Um, I mean, the idea is also to have some moments of friction to actually evacuate these things. So but don't be surprised if a few months from now you read that so-and-so has walked out from national dialogue. We'll just hope that they come back and keep the discussion open. What is preventing Libya from descending into a civil war? Um, it depends on how you define civil war. So <laughs> you pull the academic cards, always it depends on definition. Um, a civil war to me, I don't know if you think that 2004 to 8 in, in Iraq was actually a civil war. I, I, I don't, because I think that a civil war is something more structured where you have organized groups fighting each other. In Libya, right now, you don't have that much structure. You have widespread violence, you have uh, small groups, but what the groups want is influence. They define themselves by a common experience, not by, um, I don't know, a certain region or a certain ethnic identity or what have you so it, it's rather scattered the people are actually doing um, the unrest is scattered uh, that being said if it becomes more structured if you have uh, let's say large groups of militias uh, realizing that they have a lot in common and that they actually want to take the Libyan state over then you'll have a civil war right now they're not organized enough uh, that's because, by and large, they define themselves more by uh, regional city identities, where they fought, etc., rather than the fact that they're all militias. It's, that's actually an interesting aspect that I forgot to mention, that the militias amongst themselves uh, are not as organized. There, there's, here and there you'll find a few coalitions of militias, but they're, they're not that cohesive. They rather lose alliances, so they, don't ha they haven't been able to formulate uh, their interests as a group. So you don't have... Um, a structured group of people who could actually seriously threaten the Libyan state as it exists today, right now. But ask me again a year from now. The, I described uh, Libya as an... I don't know if you know that airplanes, when the engine, uh, engine stops, that they actually they can glide slowly. So it's a bit of a, on the descent. So it's not like this yet, but it's... It has to, the engines have to be kick-started fairly soon, or yes, it will crash. Well, I think that's a, a note of uh, relative optimism to end the talk tonight. <laughs> Before we thank our speaker, I want to draw your attention to the super smart and absolutely wonderful Sami Zubeda, who is giving a, uh, the annual British Society for the Study of the Middle East lecture at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, which I strongly recommend. And if that recommendation is enough, there's free wine afterwards as well. Nah. Um, so that only leaves me to thank what I thought was a brilliant, incisive, very clear lecture. So thank you very much.